saved by works. Having a week to mull over that, I expected at least one email this past week saying, have you lost your mind? Saved by works. What could he possibly mean? Uh, Where is he going to go with that? Well, follow along as I begin reading in Romans chapter 2. I'm going to read for us the first 11 verses. And I invite you, I encourage you to listen carefully for what Paul says in particular concerning works, deeds in these verses. And so hear the word of the Lord. Therefore you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges, for in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself because you, the judge, practice the very same things. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who do such things. Do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who do such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. He will render to each one according to his works. To those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, the Jew first and also the Greek, but glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good, the Jew first and also the Greek. For God shows no partiality. Now we have to begin with a review. Um, I struggle at times to know how much should I review? How much is required? Well, I think, I think we need a brief review at the very least before we dive into our text verses 6 through 11 and wrestle with this idea of what it means to be saved by works. So turn with me back to chapter 1, where it all begins. Verse 18, this is the start of the first section in this epistle. Chapter 1, verse 18. And it will continue until chapter 3, verse 20. There you have it, section number 1. In verse 18, Paul basically brings a charge. And all he is doing in this first section is proving his charge, proving his accusation. Here it is. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the the truth. So there's the charge. All people in all places at all times are guilty. Guilty of what? Suppressing the truth, the knowledge of God in particular. And why do they suppress the truth? Because of their unrighteousness. We have by nature a natural dislike, disinclination for the truth, the true knowledge of God. And so that's Paul's accusation. That's his charge. And all he's doing in this big section is proving it. 
And so the point he makes right at the top, if you like there, in verses 19 through 21, is that God has revealed himself. That's the starting point. If we don't get that, we will get nothing. God has revealed himself. God has declared himself. God has manifested himself. God is his own revealer. He reveals himself immediately, directly to all people in all places at all times. How so? Through creation. So that they are without excuse. If you got it, that's point number one. Point number two is this, that although man knows this, all people, all places, all times, although men and women know this, Although they know this knowledge of God is there, they have suppressed it by their unrighteousness. And they have refused to acknowledge God. They have refused to worship God. They have refused to give thanks to this God. They have, in short, refused to acknowledge his greatness and goodness, which he himself, without any intermediary, he himself has directly revealed to all people in all places, at all times. The consequence is what? Wherever and whenever the truth is suppressed, the result will always be idolatry. Why? Because we are worshipers. We can't help ourselves. We are wired to adore something. We are wired to make much of something. Well, if we suppress, and we do, We suppress the knowledge of God by our unrighteousness. We will necessarily put something in God's place. Idols. This idolatry can go in one of two ways. Because we always become what we worship. And this idolatry will manifest itself in two channels. So you have the revelation of God. You have our suppression and rejection of that revelation. You have us given up to idolatry. And now this idolatry going in one of two ways. The first way, the phrase I used a couple weeks ago, I'll use it again, moral debauchery. And that's what Paul explains. That's what he describes in uh, minute detail. In the rest of chapter 1, you look at what he says in verse 24. God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. Look again at verse 26. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. Look at verse 28. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind. To do what ought not to be done. Three times God gave them up. God handed them over. Handed them over to do what? Precisely what was in their hearts to do. They become, they turn into the very thing that they worship. And this is manifested in moral debauchery. That's the first channel. But the second channel is what? It is moral hypocrisy. And so Paul shifts his attention. He changes his focus between the end of chapter 1 and the start of chapter 2. He's still talking about the revelation of God. He's still speaking of the suppression of that revelation. He still has in mind the prevalence of idolatry. But now he has acknowledged that this idolatry will show itself in one of two ways. Moral debauchery, I've dealt with that. But here's way number two. Moral hypocrisy. He knows there have been people listening to what he has said concerning moral debauchery, 
and they have misinterpreted it. They have missed it. I role-played for you a couple of Sundays ago. Let me repeat what I said at that time. This is the kind of individual Paul has in view, an individual who is thinking like this. Paul, I have listened to what you have said in chapter 1, and I agree wholeheartedly with you. Amen. Amen, amen. It angers me what I see today. It frightens me what I see today. I am shocked at the moral decadence. I am astounded at the prevalence of all the creepy things you mentioned in chapter 1. Paul, it was not like this back in the good old days. I wish we could turn back the clock, and I wish we could somehow get rid of all those people, especially the unnatural ones in verses 26 and 27. I applaud you, Paul. I'm glad you spoke out against them. It is about time someone tore a strip off them. But I have one objection. One objection. You could have said even more about how angry God is with them. You could have told them in no uncertain terms that they're going to burn. I like it when you speak passionately against those things. Paul, I am so thankful I'm not like them. I'm so thankful I follow a higher code of conduct. God knows I'm not perfect. But God knows I'm pretty close. And I'm confident he will overlook my little mistakes and minor indiscretions. After all, isn't that what God's grace is all about? Paul now has this individual in his sights. And he hones in on them, locks in on them, and he will not let go. He does not let go until around verse 16. And so he has changed emphasis from the openly immoral to the secretly immoral, from the outwardly sinful to the inwardly sinful. I go through my old sermon notes once in a while because I don't know about you, but I forget what I say. Anybody forget what I say from week to week? I forget what I say sometimes. And I was going through some old sermon notes, and I found an illustration I shared with you. I think it was a year or two ago. I didn't remember, so I'm going to hazard a guess you don't remember. It was a book called The Strange Case of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, written by Robert Louis Stevenson. Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. We know that expression, right? Oh, he's like Jekyll and Hyde. She's like Jekyll and Hyde. We're referring to an individual who perhaps struggles with severe mood swings. One night, all, one moment all bubbly, and the next moment, well, someone to be avoided, right? Moods, oh, he's like Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. It's actually a book. The Strange Case of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. And in this book, the main character is Dr. Henry Jekyll. He is an upstanding citizen of the city where he lives. He is admired. He is esteemed. Uh, People look to him as a pillar of society. The problem is this. Dr. Jekyll harbors a deep secret. He experiences quite often uh, feelings, uh, emotions, inclinations, things he would like to actually do, put in practice, things, feelings he would like to satisfy, but uh, for fear of what it would mean in terms of his reputation, he suppresses those feelings. Uh, and so he has these inclinations to vent his anger, vent his lust, vent his bitterness, vent his envy, but he suppresses it all. Because if he was to give free reign to those impulses, those inclinations, well, he would ruin his reputation in the neighborhood. And so Dr. Jekyll, he's a bit of a chemist. 
And so he manufactures this potion, a potion which he can take, which will turn him into Mr. Hyde for a short period of time. And so in the evening, he takes this potion, Dr. Jekyll becomes Mr. Hyde, and off he goes in the night to do what? Satisfy his every lust, satisfy his every inclination, to do whatever it is he wants to do, because in the morning, he turns back from Mr. Hyde to Dr. Jekyll, and nobody is the wiser. Nobody knows what he's been up to during the night. Nobody knows what lusts he has satisfied, what he has indulged in. He's able to do it secretly. He thinks he is able to hide it from onlookers. What is left of his conscience begins to bother him. And after some time, Dr. Jekyll, he's even frightened by what he does when he is Mr. Hyde. And he vows, he he promises, he will never, ever take the potion again. Not only that, he vows, he determines in his mind that he is now going to make up for all of the misdeeds he committed while he was Mr. Hyde. He is now going to live an exemplary life. He is now going to do things in order to make up for, to atone for all that he has done as Mr. Hyde. And so he spends months involved in this, involved in that, committing himself to this, committing himself to that. And one day, in quiet reflection, as he sat in the park bench, we read the following, Robert Louis Stevenson's account is quite fascinating. And then I smiled, said Dr. Jekyll. Then I smiled, comparing myself with other men, comparing my active goodwill with the lazy cruelty of their neglect. And at that very moment of that vainglorious thought, a qualm, a shiver came over me. A horrid nausea and the most deadly shuddering. I looked down and I was once more Edward Hyde. What's his point? We cannot hide what we truly are inside. We are idolatrous self-worshippers. That idolatry will manifest itself. It will either go in that road, that stream of moral debauchery, or that road, that avenue, that stream of moral hypocrisy. That even Dr. Jekyll, Mr. Hyde, released as what? He became increasingly satisfied with his self-righteousness, this idol which he had erected in his own heart. That's what Paul is after here. Paul is making it clear that idolatry will go, it will flow in one of these two streams. Well, I've dealt with moral debauchery, now I'm going to deal with moral hypocrisy. I've dealt with those who are openly immoral, now I'm shifting to those who are secretly immoral. I've dealt with those who are outwardly sinful, now I am dealing with those who are inwardly sinful. And he goes right after them, verse 1 of chapter 2. You have no excuse. It's a legal term. You have no excuse. You have no rational defense. Oh man, every one of you who judges. Now please remember, Paul is not condemning all judgment. As Christians, we are commanded to judge. We are commanded to discern between right and wrong. Commanded to discern between truth and error. Commanded and expected to discern between good and evil. As a matter of fact, if we do not judge, 
We become guilty of the very thing Paul condemns in the previous chapter, verse 32, that though they know God's decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. And so Paul is not saying we shouldn't judge. What is his point here? He is simply referring to that individual who judges others while ignoring his own sin. He's referring to that person who condemns others while ignoring his own condemnation. He is speaking of those who reveled in and delighted in what Paul said in chapter 1 and reasoned to themselves quite rightly. If anyone ever deserved God's judgment, is that person. Quite rightly, if anyone ever deserved condemnation, if anyone deserves the fire of hell, it's that group of people. While missing our own guilt, while missing the depth of our own sinfulness, while completely missing our need for repentance. He goes after them. You have no excuse. And to awaken them, to shaken them, to stir them, he brings them before the tribunal of God. And he gives them a fairly detailed lesson concerning God's judgment. His first point is this, it's fair, verse 1. Second point, it's inescapable, verses 2 and 3. Third point, it is delayed, verse 4. Fifth point, it is accumulative, verse 5. That's all review. If you missed those five, you'll have to get the CD, DVD, or whatever it is, and listen to that. He now adds, and this brings us to our text, a fifth mark of God's judgment. It's simply this. It is impartial. Remember his point? He is trying to awaken the moral hypocrite. He is trying to convince the moral hypocrite of his, her precarious standing before God if he or she dares to assume that there is something about him that sets him apart, something about him that justifies him in God's sight. And so this is the fifth detail concerning God's judgment. It is impartial. Now, Ricky is going to bring a slide up on the screen behind me. There it is. Collective gasp. It's really not that complicated. What we have there is basically our text. Verses 6 through 11 of Romans chapter 2. What I have done is label... The ten phrases, A, B, C, D, E, E, D, C, B, A. Why? In the Bible, this is particularly true in the Old Testament, to some extent in the New Testament, we need to always remember there is such a thing in the Bible uh, called literary devices, parable, right? Metaphor, simile. These are literary devices. And a literary device that is used occasionally in the Bible especially in the Old Testament, but once in a while in the New Testament, is something we call parallelism. Parallelism. So you think of parallel bars in gymnastics or two parallel lines. This is a literary device that is used occasionally, and it's the device that Paul uses here in these verses. And so there are two sections. The first section is verses 6, 7, and 8. The second section, verses 9, 10, and 11. And basically, Paul makes... The same asserts the same five truths in both sections, paralleling the five truths. Why does he do that? It is for the sake of emphasis. He doesn't merely repeat them, but he reverses the order. So we have a starting point with A, 
He brings it to a climax with E, repeats it, and then works his way back to A again. That is parallelism. It is a literary device. Some of you young people, I lost you with literary device, didn't I? Admit it. Um, you think settlers, those of you who play settlers, a lot of you. We played a game of settlers at our place. I've lost the older generation. But settlers, we played it a few weeks ago at our house. And uh, I could have been a contender, but Richard Freeze picked on me the whole game. But anyway, settlers, you have five players. It's the start of the game. How do you begin? Player number one gets to put out a settlement. Player number two puts a settlement. Number three places a settlement. Number four places a settlement. Number five places a settlement. You're allowed to place two. You don't go back to number one. What happens? Number five immediately gets to place his second. Then you go back through four, three, two, one. You begin out there, you go in, and then back out again. That's parallelism. And that's what we have in this text. Why? It's for the sake of emphasis. And so the main point in a, parallel, in a text that has this parallel structure, the main point will always be found in the first and last statement. There are the brackets, the parentheses, the bookends. So there you have it. He will render to each one according to his works. And then A, right at the bottom. For God shows no partiality. So when it comes to God's judgment, it is impartial. That God does not take, he does not literally take into account our exterior. That God doesn't take into account what we think of ourselves. God doesn't take into account how impressed we are with ourselves. No, God will judge everyone impartially, impartially, and this is how he will judge them. He will render to each one according to his works. That's his point. And then in between, he shows exactly what this means. And he does so by distinguishing between two groups of people. Two groups of people. Basically put over here, those who will be saved. Right? Those who are going to heaven. There you have it, group number one. Over here, those who won't be saved. Those whose destiny is damnation. Those whose destiny is hell. He differentiates between these two groups. And he basically makes the point, look, there are three differences between these two groups of people. First of all, they have different desires. Different desires. God versus self. And so look at what he says in B. To those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality. And so there's this first group over here. What do they seek after? What do they long after? What are they living for? He mentions three things. Glory. It's not their own glory. It's God's glory. It's not their own honor. It's God's honor. It's immortality. That's the life of God. And so they're seeking for the image of God, the favor of God, and the life of God. In other words, they are God-centered. They are God-consumed. Their lives ooze God because they are living for Him and living for eternity. Now look at the second group. What does he say concerning them? Down in verse C. No, where did it go? D, but for those, the first D. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness. And so between these two groups, here's the distinguishing mark number one. They have different desires. There are, there are those, those over here who are seeking God. God is the principle of their lives. And then there are others over here, the principle of their lives is what? It is self. Self-esteem, self-love, self-adulation. The second distinguishing mark is this, their deeds. Not only do they have different desires, but they have different 
deeds. And so look again at B at the top. To those who by patience in well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality. Look at B, the parallel line down at the bottom, for everyone who does good. So that's group number one over here. They do good. Group number two, look at D, the top one, for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth but obey unrighteousness. And then the second D, getting toward the bottom, for every human being who does evil. And so they have different desires, God versus self, and they have different deeds, good versus evil. Now here is the stumbling block of stumbling blocks. Right here, right now. This is where the vast majority of people trip, stumble, fall. Here is what I believe to be in the top three in terms of stumbling blocks to the gospel. It is this. Misunderstanding the meaning of the word good. What constitutes a good deed? Paul has already indicated what constitutes a good deed. What constitutes an evil deed? It is what? The desire that lies behind it. Distinction number one, different desires, God versus self. Distinction number two, different deeds, good versus evil. What does he mean? He is referring explicitly to the desires from which our deeds, our actions, our works flow. And so there are certain things we do that flow from what? Seeking God. And then there are certain things we do that flow from what? Seeking self. Our problem is what? We struggle to grasp that. We struggle to understand it. And so we have the man over there who has no interest really in Christian things, has no interest in the Bible, and never darkens the door of a church, and certainly would not claim Jesus Christ as his Savior. But he's good. He's a nice man. Very nice man. An engaging man. And he volunteers at the hospital. And I know he's given away a lot of money. And he has neighbors who can no longer mow the lawn, and he's out there mowing the lawn. He's raised his family, done a great job at it, been faithful to his wife his whole life, held down his job over there for 36-odd years and been a faithful employee and done his best. He's good. Yeah, that's true. He is good. When we speak in terms of man's understanding of goodness and what the old theologians called civil goodness, that's true. All those things he does are good because they are for the benefit of society. And so we call those things civil goodness. But the second term, the second expression old theologians used to use was this, moral goodness. What determines whether or not an action is morally good is not the action in and of itself. It's not even the benefit it might have for other individuals. It is the reason for which it is done. Are you seeing this? And so an individual, a man, a woman, can give away a million dollars to some poverty-stricken country or to some inner-city work, can give away a million dollars. We ask ourselves, is that good? Yes and potentially no. Yes, it's good, civilly, because it's doing a great good for the benefit of society. But whether or not it is morally good, that is good in God's sight, depends on the reason for which it is done. Are you seeing this? A difference between moral goodness and civil goodness. The deed, 
might look exactly the same. You think of, of what the Lord Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount. Two men, they build houses, right? One on the rock, one on the sand. Guess what? The houses look exactly the same, folks. There's no distinguishing between the houses. The difference is in what? The foundation upon which they stand. And that's Paul's point here, that we have this this distinction that is going to be made on the basis of works. God will render to each one according to his works. Good deeds over here, evil deeds over here. We have no problem when we think of evil deeds of those things that don't benefit others. So murder. We have no problem labeling that an evil deed. But that isn't Paul's main point here. Paul's main point is any deed is evil in God's sight, meaning it is unacceptable in God's sight, meaning it doesn't score any points with God if it is not done for the right reason. A yearning, a burning, a desire for what? In well-doing, seeking for glory, His glory, seeking for His honor, seeking for the life of God, immortality. And now there's a third distinguishing mark. They have different desires, right? God's self. They have different deeds, different works. Those which are good, those which are evil. And now they have different destinies. And so look at verse C. He will give. So those whose desires and deeds are right, he will give what? Eternal life. He repeats it down in C at the bottom. Glory, honor, and peace. Those whose desires are evil, deeds are evil, what are they getting? E, right in the middle. There will be wrath and fury. There will be tribulation and distress. Two different groups of people. Different desires, different deeds, different destinies. And what's his main point? We had it in the beginning, we have it in the end. God is going to render to everyone according to his works. For God knows, shows no partiality. And so what is the hope for the moral hypocrite? What is the hope for that man, that woman, who dares stand in judgment upon others while ignoring his or her own sin? What hope is there for that individual who refuses to deal with the sinfulness of their own heart, those desires, misplaced affections, while hurling ridicule and condemnation at others? What hope is there for that man, that woman, who assume others deserve God's condemnation while they themselves will escape? There is no hope at all. Why? Because with God, there is no partiality. God is going to render to every man, every woman, exactly what they deserve according to their works. And here's how he's going to determine whether or not their works are good or evil. It will all be based on the desires. It is just as real, this threat of moral hypocrisy. It is just as real. It is just as powerful. It is just as wicked as moral debauchery whether it be the openly immoral or the secretly immoral, the outwardly sinful or the inwardly sinful. Here is Paul's point. God will render to each one according to his works. Now, his intent here is crystal clear. He's he's taken task with those given to moral debauchery, open sin. He's taken to task those who are secretly sinful, inwardly sinful, inwardly immoral. And he has done so, why? Because he is seeking to press home what he has declared back in chapter 1, verse 17, which is what? The just shall live by faith. It doesn't matter the depths 
to which you have gone in terms of your sinfulness. It doesn't matter the heights of your self-perceived righteousness. It doesn't matter what you have dabbled in. It doesn't matter what you have refrained from. It doesn't matter the extent of your sin, the breadth of your sin, the depth of your sin. It doesn't matter what your self-perception is in terms of as you evaluate yourself with others or you perceive your supposed goodness before God as you look on at a depraved world. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. The just will live by faith as we come to this firm understanding that no one will escape the tribunal of God. No one is going to escape judgment. No one is going to escape standing before the one who is a burning fire and who will look to our works and look to the heart from which our works came. And he will find each one, no matter how they have appeared externally, no matter what good they have done, no matter what, if they're Mr. Philanthropist of the Year, he's going to go to the heart and he's going to discern the secrets of our hearts. What makes us beat? What makes us tick? What do we think about when we're all alone? What do we dream of? What notions do we entertain in the inner recesses of our minds and hearts? My friend, That is what he's going to judge, and we will not stand. Therefore, the just can only live. The just only have hope by faith. Faith in someone else, namely the Lord Jesus Christ. Faith in the fact that he has paid the penalty for sinners. Faith in the fact that he has fulfilled all righteousness for sinners. Faith in this undeniable fact that there is salvation nowhere else other than in God's Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. That is Paul's point. Now, I want to draw four additional conclusions, four additional points of application from this text, which I think are of some importance. I'll go through these quickly. Here they are, number one. Please hear me all the way through. Don't check out at any point or you'll be in trouble and you'll want to pick a fight with me. Here they are, one, two, three, four, all the way through. Number one, good works are absolutely essential to salvation. That's the text, right? I'm not making that up. That's what Paul says. He's going to render each one according to his works. Good works are absolutely essential to salvation. In other words, no one is saved without good works. I've got, some of you just woke up. There is no salvation apart from good works. The Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father. And then he will repay each person according to what he has done. Matthew 16, 27. I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne. And books were opened, and the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. Revelation 20, verse 12. Behold, I am coming, Lord Jesus, bringing my recompense with me to repay everyone for what he has done. Revelation 22, 12. Good works are absolutely essential for salvation. Now, some here need to hear that. You need to hear that because you've made a deal with Jesus. Asked him into your heart, got your fire insurance policy, and now you're living however you please. You are desperately deceived. 
unbelievably deceived. There is no salvation apart from good works. Good works are absolutely essential to salvation. I believe in Jesus. Praise God for faith. Praise God, it's all of grace. Praise God, hallelujah, amen. But I pretty much live however I please. Pretty much do whatever I want. You are mistaken. You are not saved. And you must repent of your sin. Turn to the Lord Jesus Christ in faith, resting on a full and final Savior, transformed by the Holy Spirit. Good works are absolutely essential to salvation. Number two. Bring a little clarity. Good works are not the meritorious cause of salvation. Meritorious, big word, merit. So in other words, good works don't don't earn salvation. Good works don't produce salvation. Good works don't merit salvation. They are not the meritorious cause of salvation. For by grace you've been saved through faith. It is not of yourselves, it is a gift of God, not of works. Amen. Hallelujah. Lest any man should boast. And so it is not the meritorious cause of salvation. One of my favorite songs, Rock of Ages. I wrote down a couple of stanzas here. This is, I lay my head, this is my pillow at night, every night. Not the labor of my hands can fulfill thy law's demand. Could my zeal no respite know? Could my tears forever flow? All for sin could not atone. Thou must save and thou alone. Nothing in my hand I bring. Simply to thy cross I cling. Naked come to thee for dress. Helpless look to thee for grace. Foul I to the fountain fly. Wash me, Savior, else I die. Good works are not the meritorious cause of salvation. We are justified by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. But what did I mean with point number one then? That they are absolutely essential to salvation. Point number three. Here you go. Good works are the demonstrable evidence of salvation. Demonstrable. That which reveals, that which demonstrates that which manifests, that which shows forth, that which makes plain. Good works are the demonstrable evidence of salvation. For by grace you have been saved through faith. It is not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no man should boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Hear what Paul says in his epistle to Titus. He gave himself, Christ gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. And so again, number three, good works are the demonstrable evidence of salvation. The flower on the bush The grape on the vine, the leaf on the tree, the ear of corn on the stalk. None of them give life to the plant. But all of them prove that the plant is alive. Good works are the demonstrable evidence of salvation. 
Fourth point, the fourth truth is this. This one I, with this one I conclude. Good works are whatever we do in faith for God's glory and man's good. Good works. This is what Paul lays as foundation in our text in Romans 2. Good works are whatever we do in faith for God's glory and for man's good. Here's where some of us get into trouble. Here's where many of us get into trouble. Most of us. All of us get into trouble right here. We compartmentalize good works. You know what I mean by that? We compartmentalize them. The good works constitute a subset of my life. Right? Apart from the ordinary, apart from the everyday. And so good works, well, that's something I finally get around to after I've finished working and put the kids to bed. That's how most of us think of good works. Something extra, something added on. It's true. What we do outside of our daily routine and the things we commit ourselves to, the soccer camp, VBS, preparing meals for one another, visiting and helping, all of these extras and add-ons, yes, they do constitute good works, but they are not the main thing. Good works are what we do day in and day out for God's glory and man's good. Answering email. Attending meetings, balancing budgets, teaching students, packing lunches, preparing sermons, cutting grass, changing diapers, laying foundations, painting walls, performing surgery, cleaning cupboards, washing windows, preparing meals, and on and on and on it goes. We do it for God's glory. And we do it for others' good. And these are, in the sight of God, by the grace of God in the Lord Jesus Christ, what? Good works. We do it all with patience, seeking for glory and honor and immortality, resting fully and finally in our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our Father, we praise you yet again for your word. We praise you that it is indeed a light by day, a lamp by night. We praise you because it is able to penetrate deep beyond skin and flesh and bone and blood and marrow into the very fiber of our being, revealing who and what we are, revealing you and all your glory, and revealing the truth of the gospel. We pray, our Father, that by your Spirit it might be implanted deep within this day, Like the prophets of old, we might take it and eat it and taste that is indeed good. And we pray, our Father, that as a result, your Son, the Lord Jesus, might be greatly exalted in our lives. In his name we do ask it. Amen.